0: This is Paula Morell, and welcome to Tales from the South, presented by Bourbon and Boots.com. Hold your hand in my pipe. I'm
1: sorry for the things I've done. I want you for all time. And I want a second chance. I guess I was listening to say I love
0: you. But chances are you. How's everybody doing tonight? All right, well, welcome to Tales from the South, where Southerners bring their own true stories to life. We are on location in the beautiful, historic Argenta Arts District in North Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> from the south is presented by southern lifestyle brand BourbonandBoots.com, and i'm your host paula martin morrell all right are y'all ready for some southern style storytelling yeah. tonight our stories all center around predictions some based on facts some based on hope and all based on love all stories are true and told by the southerners who live them Later tonight, Sarah Dacus predicts a champion and will end the night with Eric Van Meter as his mother's prediction hangs in the balance. But let's start the night here at Tales from the South presented by bourbonandboots.com with Mikey Orphanos and a hopeful prediction by her parents that this summer will be different in Mimi's Garden.
2: The sun lit the curtains in my bedroom at Mimi's house, gently waking me up. And as I opened my eyes to sleepily consider the day ahead, my grandmother banged into the room in full regalia, looking a little bit like a scarecrow with her straw hat, overalls, and bright pink floral shirt. Get up, you're wasting daylight, she crowed, assaulting my teenage sense of what morning meant. The chickens need attention and the garden needs water, chop, chop. I could only stare at her, mute from the shock of her demand so early, Starting the day with work was completely out of my routine. I was used to slowly waking up, cocooned in the loving warmth of my bed, then thinking for a good, long time about what I might do that day, and waiting for hunger to bring me to the nearest coffee shop for breakfast. So to be polite, I smiled a little and told her I was getting up, but she wasn't fooled so easily. I raised your mother and she was just like you, sleepyhead. I'm not leaving into your vertical. <laughs> she giggled a little under her breath, fully enjoying the moment. So I co- coaxed my slumber, heavy body out of the bed so she would leave and give me a second to become fully human. I wandered to the bathroom to splash some water on my face, and as I brushed my teeth, I thought, this must be what prison is like. <laughs> Although she really did make a cute little warden with her full cheeked, weathered face complete with lines that deepened every time she smiled at me. Now this was day one of a mandatory visit with my grandmother. My parents sent me to her house uh, for a month over summer break the year before I went into high school. They'd had enough of my truant ways and being too young to have a real job they sent me to Mimi's house to straighten up. My grandmother had grown up during the Depression and had learned many hard life lessons that I really didn't think applied to me. But that turned out to be the real meaning of the visit, the generational passing down of wisdom. That love can overcome almost any obstacle, especially a wayward teenage girl heading in the wrong direction. So, after dressing in my usual outfit of black tights, shorts, hoodie, high tops, I went into the kitchen looking for coffee. And there she was. Standing barefooted with a cup in her outstretched hand, smiling, I nodded a silent thank you in her direction and took the cup. Light and sweet, just like you like it. You hungry? I told her no and sipped the coffee waiting for it to bring me to life and not missing a beat. Mimi shrugged her shoulders and moved to the side door that led to the garden. You're going to get hot in that get-up! She yelled over her shoulder as she stepped into her rubber clogs and out the door. Just as I was thinking about how fast she moved, she leaned back into the door and ordered me to hurry up. So there was no time to sit and watch the morning news or read the paper here, no. The comparison to prison was getting closer and closer. (laughs) And as soon as I walked out the door, I immediately started sweating. Summers in the South being notoriously hot and humid, I was already onto my first lesson at Mimi's. Dress appropriately, not fashionably. Not that my skater chic was exactly fashionable, but my friends thought I was cool. And I was too stubborn to give in and let her be right, so I suffered through watering the garden, picking what was right, chasing lizards out of the strawberries, feeding chickens and gathering eggs. And then I learned that that was just the morning chores. (laughs) So needless to say, from then on, I shed the tights, wore a loose t-shirt with my shorts, and I think she secretly got a big kick out of that. Afterwards, Mimi taught me a lesson about generosity when we took half the morning's harvest to a family she knew was in need. There's no time for pride when you're hungry, she said when we got back in the car. And I just looked at her in amazement. Then we went home and made lunch out of what we'd picked. We had hard-boiled eggs, sliced tomatoes with green beans, boiled potatoes, and sweet tea, and I don't think I'd ever had a tastier meal. After lunch, we sat at the kitchen table and played gin and talked while the sun was at its hottest. And you know what? She must have been a mind reader because just when I was sizing up the sofa for a post-lunch nap, she announced it was time to go pull the weeds. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, so when my visit was feeling really more and more like hard time, she pulled a weed, and snipping off of it, told me to taste it. It's pepperweed, she said. And sure enough, the little round leaves tasted peppery. And I also tasted the budding flower of a begonia, which tasted kind of tangy. She showed me all kinds of wild plants to eat. At a nearby stream, we picked watercress and ate it for dinner with trout we bought at the fish market. Afterward, she taught me about the cycle of life as we buried the fish heads in the garden to feed the soil. The earth feeds us, and in turn we feed the earth, I remember her saying while we stuck the smelly heads in the ground. If it came from the garden and we didn't eat it, back it went in the compost. Really, waste was not in her vocabulary. Everything she did had a purpose and a deeper meaning. And convenience, for me, was my status quo. If I was hungry, I'd make a burrito and never think twice about what was in it, much less that I could actually grow my own things to eat. Her actions that summer made a profound impact on my teenage sensibility and it was beginning to dawn on me that the sun didn't rise and set on my head which was really mind-blowing for a self-absorbed girl who's, who thought she had everything figured out her zen lifestyle was a whole new world for me from sunup to sundown that summer we stayed busy and i was never really sure if i was being punished or if she was just a hyperactive old lady but there was always something to do at Mimi's garden and she taught me lessons every step of the way. We never spoke directly about my troubles or why my parents had sent me to her. She just kept me moving alongside her as she went along her days and as summer wore on I began to appreciate her time-consuming but gentle way of guiding me in a better direction. When it was time for my parents to take me back I was really happy to go home. (laughs) But I was really saddened to say goodbye to Mimi's way of life that I had grown to love. That summer with Mimi did exactly what my parents had intended, and I by no means turned into an angel. But the lesson she handed down to me did stick with me, and they continue to guide me. And now that I have children of my own, I find myself telling them so many of the things she said to me. And when I think of her now, I imagine her in her overalls and straw hat, smiling down at me from heaven. Thank you.
0: Mikey Orfanos is pleased to be a part of Tales from the South. Mimi's garden is a love letter to her grandparents who passed down to her their love of the land. Next on Tales from the South, presented by Bourbon and Boots.com, Sarah Dacus makes a winning prediction both for a racehorse and for herself in Chasing My American Pharaoh Dream.
3: Life in San Francisco is still just life. My physician and confidant dispenses this wisdom from Lonesome Dove along with my happy pills. During the spring of 2014 I sat on the edge of Lake Hamilton and contemplated how to get more out of my non-San Francisco southern small town life. I felt stagnant. I wanted to live and not just exist. As the master of my fate and the captain of my soul, I made resolutions in this watershed moment. I resolved to write more, even if it were just for myself. I paired my passion for horse racing with my love for the written word. My Bible Belt upbringing did not include the track or horses, so occasionally people ask me how I became enthralled with thoroughbred racing. While we were dating, my husband and I went to Oaklawn Park in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and the track resonated with me quite unexpectedly. I love the original entertaining thoroughbred names. (laughs) Among recent favorites are Hashtag Bourbon, Fifty Shades of Hay, (laughs) And far right, whose name was his post position in the Kentucky Derby. Piecing together the puzzle of abundant stats available keeps the game engaging and challenging. The people watching is exquisite. A glorious, diverse mixture that includes Hatted High Society and railbirds who might be spending their last dollars looking for a miracle. I relish the post parade. The trumpeter's call, the spectacle of the colorful silks, the beauty of the animals, and the compact power of the jockeys. The race itself is two minutes of adrenaline rush as horses' hooves create flying dirt. The thrill of the intermittent big win keeps me returning to the bedding window. My first published horse racing piece outlined the complexities of then-triple crown candidate California Chrome. An Arkansas sports blog posted it and later ran several more of my articles. I sent these to a national horse racing blog who welcomed me to become a regular contributor. I wrote my heart out. About why Oaklawn Park is one of the best race tracks in the country, I raved about its famous corned beef sandwich. I suggested win/place show dining in hot springs, and recommended attractions near the park. I provided betting tips for beginners and a horse racing playlist. <laughs> And then I received photo credentials to cover the 2015 Rebel Stakes, the second biggest race day at Oaklawn Park. The grade two race was one of 16 races in the Kentucky Derby Championship Series, offering qualifying points to the top finishers. The favorite in the Rebel was American Pharaoh, a Bay Colt with a misspelled name. He was also the individual favorite in the Kentucky Derby Future Wager Pool. But the horse racing world was not completely on fire about him yet. He was untested. At this point in his career, he had competed three times, an initial loss followed by two wins. Next, Pharaoh was the horse to beat entered into the Breeders' Cup Juvenile But four days before the race, his trainer detected a problem in the horse's left front foot, which led to the entertaining Los Angeles Daily News headline, Baffert reluctantly pulls out of juvenile. The Rebel was Pharaoh's return to racing, his three-year-old debut in his first race outside of California. He faced formidable competition, including two opponents sired by Rebel winners. Storms brewed on the day of the Rebel Stakes, but nothing could interfere with my euphoria. I arrived early to get my press pass. In a move more fitting for someone 20 years younger, this tag and lanyard still hangs from my dresser mirror. (laughs) Initially, the track was rated good, but it was downgraded to sloppy later in the day. Mud oozed from my shoes, and my flat hair hung sadly. (laughs) But I remained ecstatic. When the gates opened for the feature race, jockey Victor Espinoza, in fiction such an appropriately winning first name would be too cliche, an American pharaoh bobbled for a brief second, slightly dislocating one of pharaoh's shoes. But they recovered quickly and glided around the oval with a beauty that sharply contrasted the dreary day. Frank Miramati, Oakland's track announcer at the time, saw early on how the race was unfolding. American Pharaoh will dictate his own terms, his strong call emitted from the loudspeakers. American Pharaoh ran on a lake, a prep that gave him experience for the Preakness Stakes, the second leg of the Triple Crown where the sky opened up and poured doom on everyone at Pimlico. But at Oaklawn, during Pharaoh's first run of 2015, a minute and a half later, Frank Miramati voiced the conclusion, it's all American Pharaoh answering this test with flying colors. American Pharaoh will romp home in the rebel. In a striking performance, Pharaoh galloped magnificently gate to wire. I hadn't been so extraordinarily moved by an Oakland horse race since Pharaoh's stable mate Bodie Meister rumbled down the home stretch in the 2012 Arkansas Derby and blew my hair back as I stood by the rail. <laughs> Pharaoh's 6 and a quarter length victory affirmed he was a major player. He handled a long layoff, shipping, a misplaced right front shoe, and a sloppy track with ease. Predictably, American Pharaoh gained more attention after his victory in the Arkansas Derby, which I also covered as a member of the press. And Pharaoh's fame grew after winning each of the Triple Crown races the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness Stakes, and finally, the Belmont Stakes. Immediately after becoming the first horse to win the Triple Crown in 37 years, the roar of the crowd was reported to be deafening and sustained. The witnesses, including President Bill Clinton, stood for 20 minutes as they applauded the 12th member of this very select society. Back in our southern small town, my husband and I opened the only bottle of crystal that has ever graced our liquor cabinet. <laughs> I continued to remind anyone who would listen that Pharaoh started his road to the Triple Crown with us in Arkansas. On that Rebel Stakes Saturday in March, after crossing the finish line, American pharaoh loped around to cool down before entering the winner's circle. An enormous media scrum, the kind the horse would later handle with ease, did not stalk the champ. Pharaoh passed me several times. My camera clicked away. I captured images of owner Ahmed Syed and his sons celebrating and stroking the nose of their winner. I took pictures of Oakland's paddock host, Nancy Holtus, interviewing assistant trainer Jimmy Barnes. At one point, I stood five feet away from American Pharaoh. Victor Espinosa smiled at me. <laughs> On that day, I predicted American Pharaoh would do well in the Kentucky Derby. But I didn't predict, as some horse racing fans later would, that he would save horse racing or at least reinvigorate the sport. What I did know is that when I looked in American Pharaoh's eyes, as blood still pumped quickly through both his veins and mine, I felt incredibly alive.
0: Sarah Dacus is a lifelong Arkansan. She attempts to stamp out ignorance as an 8th grade English teacher. In her spare time, she is an avid horse racing enthusiast who contributes regularly to America's best racing. She shares life with a handsome husband and curious 2-year-old son. In our final story of the night here at Tales from the South, presented by Bourbonandboots.com, Eric Van Meter's brush with greatness is hopefully predicted by his mother in... The Fat Kid Steals Home.
4: Like most members of the writing cast, I care most about things that happen only in my head. (laughs) True, there may be a corresponding reality out there somewhere in the cold world of empirical truth, but that's not where the most meaningful things reside, at least for me. Rather, they locate themselves in my thoughts and memories where I can both love them and manipulate them into whatever I want them to be. (laughs) All of which helps explain why I tried to play Little League Baseball. (laughs) I spent my childhood listening to the St. Louis Cardinals on our local AM radio affiliate. Announcer Jack Buck described what I assume were real events that took place in real ballparks that I had never seen. Bush Stadium, Candlestick Park, Wrigley Field, but my experience of the games was something different, my own recreation of the plays in my imagination. And in my head, the throws were always perfect, the hits all line drives, the umpires all fools. This ability to imagine a reality that wasn't quite reality led me to determine that I could be a baseball player too. Never mind that I was the fattest kid in our elementary school, easily twice as heavy as our diminutive shortstop, Kevin. Forget that I had the worst eyesight in the third grade. (laughs) Disregard my general lack of coordination, my weak throwing arm, my inability to outrun my mother while she push mowed the lawn. In my head, I was a ball player. My mother went along with the delusion and perhaps even encouraged it. She bought the double XL polyester pants and jersey for me. (laughs) Along with a set of cleats from the discount shoe store, I used a glove my grandfather found while mowing roadsides for the highway department. Someone got me an aluminum bat with which I promptly broke my brother's jaw on a wild swing but all of the trappings of athleticism could not produce in me the real thing. Over the course of the five-week season, I struck out in every at-bat except one. My only contact resulting in a ground ball so weak, the catcher tagged me out. (laughs) With each at-bat, my poor mother suffered that special parental pain that comes with watching your child fail in public. All of this was verifiable fact. And taken together, it constituted a clear message I was not cut out to play baseball, even at the 10-year-old level. I would have been better off practicing Spanish or learning calculus, but I didn't. (laughs) Instead, I spent my afternoons tossing baseballs into the air and trying to hit them. When the shadows grew long enough to cover the front yard, I threw tennis balls against the house, to practice my fielding, all the while hearing Jack Buck narrate my spectacular plays as though I were filling in for Ozzie Smith at Shea Stadium. In my head, it all made sense. When you develop such a powerful ability to frame your experience of the world without regard to the facts it presents, your career options are limited. (laughs) You can write, but you likely also will want to eat. And so you get your bachelor's degree in English and work at Starbucks or you go into church work, which is what I did. 15 years after my Little League debacle, I found myself drawn to seminary by a grand religious vision of peace on earth and goodwill toward all. It was a world I had never quite inhabited, but I knew in my heart had to exist. The problem with my career choice, as it turned out, was a familiar one. I kept striking out, metaphorically speaking. I did more funerals than baptisms. I worked with colleagues whose ordination made them no more honest and no less self-absorbed than anyone else. I once preached a sermon on caring for the sick at 11 a.m. and then an hour later broke up a fight in a trustees committee over whether or not to blight the front steps of the church by installing a wheelchair ramp. (laughs) You're crazy to keep working as a pastor, my friend Billy said. Billy became a college professor and a consultant. Now he does extreme workouts four times a week rather than involve himself in the minutiae of religious life. But Billy, like me, is a writer at heart, and we tend to feel the injustices of the world a bit more acutely than the masses. As we became more jaded with the religious enterprise, we looked for other outlets for the good we knew was hidden somewhere in the world. I buried myself in a novel I was writing. Billy built a cabin entirely by hand, in the years since, he has started a popular website devoted to living a simple, uncluttered life. We each developed our own vision of how life should be. His is more tangible and probably more stylish, but no less delusional than mine. <laughs> Billy and I still talk sometimes about the arc of our lives, how messed up the world seems to have gotten, how hard it is to get out of the bed some days in the face of such widespread suffering and violence and violence and exploitation, but then one of us will tell a story. That last storm blew a tree over onto my neighbor's garage. Billy will say. Justice came over with his chainsaws and we got it cleared out. Anybody get hurt? I'll ask. No, but it destroyed my neighbor's truck. Justice thinks he can fix it, but it'll take a couple thousand dollars. We're taking a collection to help out. And I'll pay for my meal and tip the server and give Billy whatever is left for my change to help fix the truck. Then I'll think of his story as I drive home and match it up against the pettiness of everyday religious life, which I'm sure still causes Jesus to weep. One is the reality that I live in. The other, the reality I believe in, and faith in this light is not conviction, but the choice to remain hopeful. At the end of that long season of failure, in what would prove to be my final at-bat in my baseball career, the story on the field finally caught up with the one in my head. The pitch came in, I swung as hard as I could, and I cracked a line drive into the left center field gap. My mother's voice rang out, run, she screamed. (laughs) And so I ran as fast as my fat little legs could carry me, which is to say about as fast as the proverbial turtles in peanut butter. A ball hit that far would easily be a home run for anyone else on the team. I made it only to third base before I gave up. While the other team relayed the ball back into the infield, I stood on the bag and gasped for air and tried not to throw up. When I could finally bring myself upright again, I looked over at the bleachers. My mother stood clapping her hands and beaming with delight. It was strange to see her from this angle. In fact, the whole world looked out of sorts. I had never seen a baseball field from third base before, not even in practice. What exactly should one do in the face of such surprising success? I stepped on my shoelace and quietly undid the knot and then called out so I could come up with a plan. As I knelt in the dirt to retie the shoe, the reality that I was fat and half-blind and slow and unathletic did not enter my head. I only saw the possibilities of my situation. There were two outs. We were down by a run. These are the circumstances from which heroes emerge. I looked toward home plate, only 60 feet away in our age bracket, much closer than it had looked from the bench. Jack Buck's voice was in my head. He's got that look about him, folks. There's no fear in this base runner. The pitcher looked in for the sign. I dug my left foot into the side of the base and leaned forward.
0: Eric Van Meter is a writer, college pastor, and former Little League benchwarmer. His only official hit came in his hometown of Charleston, Arkansas. So how about our stories and storytellers tonight? Thank you to all of our writers, thank you to our live audience, and thank you to all of our listeners. Tales from the South is presented by Southern Lifestyle brand, bourbonandboots.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Stitcher Smart Radio, and you can download and listen to our podcast on our website. More can be found at talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next time for another edition of Bourbon and Boots Tales from the South. Good night, everybody.
1: Second chance and hold your hand in my eye. I'm sorry for the things I've done, I want you for all time. And I want a second chance I guess I was listening and say I love you. But chances are. to be It's black